welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life, and boy, what a long, strange week it's been. My name is Kim. And I'm Steve, and Kim was not exaggerating. I think this has been one of the most surreal weeks surreal weeks that we have experienced for a variety of reasons um i'm not going to go into it here because it'll take some time but uh if you would like to know why the show is out a day late please visit our facebook page and you can read Uh, all about our little granddaughter nora i I think uh this episode with the topic and everything we're going to carry and i do i want to mention a little bit about nora because i want to it's going it's I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to run a little bit over. So I'm watching Kim's eyes right now because we, we tried to keep it to an hour. But this past week, our little granddaughter, Nora, uh, to, to make a long story short, she's fine now. Mm-hmm. Um, had some seizures, was taken by ambulance. The, by ambulance. The Lebanon Fire and EMS came in, took great care of her. Thank you very much. If you are a Lebanon uh, paramedic, thank you so much. Uh, we were told that she was in the very best possible hands and that they were very, very fast. Yeah. And then she was taken to Cincinnati Children's Hospital where a lot of diagnosis, it, it was... was a uh, week it, it was a long it's week. that, then it's this other thing. Yeah, I mean, but the doctor, Cincinnati Children's is probably one of the best hospitals in the country for this type of stuff. And we were very relieved that she was there. But um, it looks like everything is under control right now. I mean, there will be some long-term things maybe, but everything is looking good for Nora right now. So uh, so we had that going on in our personal lives. And then uh, apparently uh, the, z- the zombie outbreak is upon us <laughs> or something. Yeah. And we, look, we don't want to make... No, it's, it's not... I don't want to make it sound like it's not bad because it is bad. Um, we are, most of you know, we're in Ohio. Uh, and Ohio has been one of the most strict um, places, I think, Aggressive. in the country. Aggra- there is Aggressive. the word I'm looking for. Yep. Uh, they, Governor DeWine um, closed the schools on... Oh, a state of emergency was declared in Ohio. Yes. Uh, effective tomorrow on Monday, schools are closed. Uh, for at least three weeks. Tonight at 9 o'clock, this is Sunday night because we're late, restaurants and bars will be shut down, mm-hmm. which it's it's affecting a lot of people. Yeah. As you can imagine, the servers and, and that whole industry right there, there are people who most likely are going to be out of work tonight at 9 o'clock. But, but to his credit, um, I really respect uh, Governor DeWine for what he's doing. He realizes that these people are going to be very hard hit. He has made it um, very easy for them to get unemployment, even though they will still be able to return to their job once this ban has been lifted and everything will be fine. But in the meantime, he has put stopgap measures in place, which is which is great. Thank you. Um, but it's just, uh, I think it, we okay, won't even yeah, talk so, about the well, run yeah. on toilet paper. Yeah, so I mean... A lot of people are, we are trying to look at this tonight. Our, our, our topic tonight is global pandemic. Uh, we're specifically talking about this, the Spanish, this quote unquote Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. And we'll, we'll get into the Spanishness of but the Spanish flu. But there are a lot of parallels between what is happening right now and the, the, 
the Spanish flu of 1918. And, and we are going to do our best. A lot of people are trying to make this a political issue, and as, as we have gone through this past week, when we were able, we we are trying to present facts. Now, right. we are not experts. <laughs> we are not, do your research and educate yourselves. We are, we are not the CDC. No. So take what we say. This is how we are going to approach this with the common sense type things as we go through and and talk. Actually, we're not going to talk about how to prevent this. We're going to just tell you some stories. And like I said, there are a lot of parallels here, but take it for what it's worth. Yeah. And also we kind, I mean, we picked this with the Corona, the coronavirus was around when we picked this topic. It had not yet affected America as strongly as it has now a week later. Like this has gone in the, the country has lost its mind this last week, but honestly, um, I, it gives me some a little bit of hope researching the Spanish flu that we have been there as a country. We've been here before as a nation and we've come through it and we're fine. Um, I do want to, if you're listening in Italy, I do want to give a shout out to our friends in Italy and, and give, you know, let you know that our hearts are with you. I know they've been real hard hit. So, yeah. So you ready to uh, jump into it? Yes. So the global pandemic, the flu outbreak of 1918, as Kim said, when we picked this, we thought, and we'll just pick this episode. We had no idea that things were going to get as bad as they are. We would be where we are today. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like we're psychic or something. No, no, I was thinking it's almost like after nine eleven. Just it does. We with, talked with how about the that. Countries at right now. Yeah, we've talked about that. I mean, um, it, it doesn't have the. The impact of... It's not as somber. I remember after 9-11, like, the radio station stopped playing music and stuff. It's not to that level, but it is... It's very weird. Yeah, just try to buy toilet paper. At, I, people are hoarding toilet paper. Yeah. Okay, so anyway. Anyway. Global pandemic. The flu outbreak of 1918. Now, be, let us be very clear. The current outbreak of COVID-19, or is more commonly known, the coronavirus, is not the Spanish flu of 1918. The Spanish flu of 1918 was actually very similar to what we went to in 2009 with the H1N1, or as I like to call it, the Heine. Okay, I am going to interrupt you right here because I had it. Um, she did. I had the H1N1 in 2009. It was terrible. I hated every minute of it. Um, it was every bit as bad as you would think. I, it was so, it lasted for, the fever lasted long after the, the actual flu did. Um, and at one point I coughed so hard that I separated a rib. Yeah. So when we are talking about, it's the same, it's a similar, it's not the same strain, but I deeply feel for the people who went through this in 1918, because even, I mean, in 2009, there wasn't a lot that they could do for me, but they could make me comfortable and you'll find that there wasn't a lot that they could do for these guys back then. Yeah. So the similarities of what we're doing today and what happened in 1918, they're, they're, they track. A lot of things are happening. There were surgical masks, stockpiling of food, avoidance of public gatherings, and the potential economic ramifications are like those of 1918. It's happening outside the doors as we speak right now. Mm -hmm. The medical reality, though, is quite different. Because of the lack of testing, nobody right now can honestly say what the impact of corona. So we hear a lot of people throwing out facts and figures, mm -hmm. 
And I, th- I think as we have looked at many, many different ways, the, these are predictions. No one knows exactly what is going to happen, the right. total impact. They, and they we can't. can't. There's yeah. no way. You can predict, but it's a brand new strain. Yeah. And the other thing is we really don't know how many people have had it right now, be it maybe a mild case. So the numbers and the statistics out there are really, really skewed. So now let me give an example here of how the different reporting is going or, or how reporting can be gone or taken. And so this is an example, and these numbers aren't actual. But let's say if the population of country X is 100 people, 10% of the people have been tested and confirmed to have had the virus, and that would mean, and one person dies, that would mean that the mortality rate would be 10%. But if all 100 people were infected and confirmed by testing, then the mortality rate would only be 1%. Mm. So a lot of the statistics... Yeah, are, are, they're kind you, of you subjective. Have to, it's, you have to really pay attention to what they're saying to get the right numbers and what they're trying. So some people may be trying to blow things out of proportion. So you could, you could honestly say 10% or you could try to calm it down and say 1%. Yeah. So it's, it's just really, really difficult right now to... I don't, I don't think anyone actually knows exactly. I mean, there are a lot of smart people who are... Doing, they're doing their best. They're, they're doing their best. And in 1918, the world was a really different place, even without the disruptive influence of World War I. Doctors knew viruses existed, but they'd never physically seen one. There weren't any electron microscopes. The genetic material of viruses had not yet been discovered, so they could see the effects of a virus, but they couldn't actually see the virus itself. Today, however, researchers not only know how to isolate a virus, but they can find its genetic sequence, they can test antiviral drugs, and they can develop a vaccine. So, while there are differences, there are many similarities in prevention in the reaction of the government and the people. Yeah. So, to give a quick overview, in 1918, a strain of influenza known as Spanish flu caused a global pandemic. It spread rapidly, it killed indiscriminately across the entire world. Young, old, sick, and otherwise healthy people all became infected. Estimates vary on the exact number of deaths caused by the disease, but is believed to have infected, back in 1918, a third of the world's population and killed at least 50 million people. And this makes it one of the most deadly pandemics in modern history. Now, there are other pandemics. We can talk about the Black Plague and things like that, but let's... When we let's just talk about modern history right now, the virus infected about 500 million people worldwide and killed an estimated between 20 million to 50 million people. That's more than all the soldiers and civilians killed during World War One combined. So now um, I'm going to throw some math at you, which is not my strong suit, but I think I got oh, it. Oh boy! I think I got it. So at the time, this represented a third of the global population. So as many as 50 million people died from the H1N1 virus, even though the true figure is thought to be even higher. So to put that in today's terms, imagine 2.3 billion people with a B dying as a result of the coronavirus. It's estimated that the virus infected as much as 25% of the... Now, this is in, this, in 1918. The virus infected as much as 25% of the U.S. population and among the members of the U.S. Navy... 
this number reached up to 40%, possibly because of the conditions of serving at sea. Now, the flu had killed 200,000 Americans by the end of October 1918, and the pandemic killed over 675,000 Americans in total. Now, at the time, the national population was about 103 million, so let's put that in today's terms. Today, the national population is about 330 million. So if you work the math out roughly, that would equate 630,000 people dead in a year or about 2.2 million people dead today in about 18 months. Yeah. And again, let's be clear. We're not talking about COVID V. No, no, no. no, We're talking about that if, if the Spanish flu of 1918 were to happen today, according to the numbers that happened back in 1918 that's what it would look like so to just give you an idea of how serious it is when we say it killed um what do we say two uh 675,000 americans if we were to put that in today's terms it's the same as if you killed 2.2 million americans now the impact on the population was so severe that in 1918 the american life expectancy was reduced by 12 years Wow. Yeah. It's it was severe. And while the global pandemic lasted for 2 years, the vast majority of deaths were packed into 3 especially rough months in the fall of 1918. And the historians now believe that the fatal severity of the Spanish flu, what they're calling the second wave, was caused by a mutated virus spread by wartime troop movements. So, the World War 1 really did impact um, the spread of the of the Spanish flu. Kim, can you give a couple definitions here, like sure. the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Yeah, um, basically it's it's population size. So an epidemic, a disease can be declared an epidemic when it spreads over a wide area and many individuals are taken ill at the same time. So it starts out as an epidemic, and then if the spread escalates further, an epidemic can become a pandemic which affects an even wider geographical area and a significant portion of the population becomes affected. Often, I, I don't know if this is scientifically accurate, but I tend to think of an epidemic as being... More local? A sort of more local. Once it Regional. Spreads, once it spreads over a body of water, whether it be um, like a, a large, like an ocean, I would say, um, or like a very large channel, I would then say that it's probably a pandemic. Pandemic is more worldwide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a pandemic is much bigger than an epidemic. So this flu was nicknamed the Spanish flu, but it's really unlikely that this virus originated in Spain. So in 1918, the Spanish flu, they think, started with birds and like we said earlier, was actually a strain of the H1N1, or the Heine, as I call it, <laughs> strain. China is generally believed to be the first case because they had fewer fatalities than the other nations. Now, like, oh, okay, so another parallel so, right there with so, COVID. So why why do, why do they think this? Okay, so I'm going to try, Doctor Steve here. I am not, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to give a little simple lesson on pathology. Again, I. Didn't even stay at the Holiday Inn last night. When the body is exposed to a virus, it creates antibodies to fight that illness. These antibodies are called memory cells. And like like the name says, memory cells, they remember what the virus looked like and how it worked. 
So when a person is exposed to the same virus again, the body basically clones those memory cells so that the illness can be fought off more quickly and efficiently than it was the first time. So, using that logic, since China was less affected by the Spanish flu, the theory, and this is a relatively new theory, is that the population that had already been exposed to the Spanish flu at some other point. So the, ver the first documented cases of the pandemic appeared in January of 1918. So in 2014, this new theory about the origins of the virus suggested that it originated in China, like we said. According to National Geographic, newly discovered records link the flu to transportation of Chinese laborers that were brought over from China, and they came across Canada. They, were, they, they came across in boat from China to Canada in 1917-1918. Now, these, these laborers were mostly farm workers from really remote parts of rural China. As they traveled across Canada, they spent six days in sealed train containers as they moved across Canada and were eventually put on boats and made their way to France. In France, they were made to dig ditches, unload trains, lay track, build roads, and repair military vehicles. So they were used as laborers. And in total, there were about 25,000 Chinese laborers in 1918, and about 3,000 uh, ended up in medical quarantine by the time they left or got to Canada. And at the time, because of racial stereotypes, their illness was blamed on Chinese laziness, and Canadian doctors didn't take the workers' symptoms seriously. So by the time they arrived in northern France in early 1918, a lot of them were sick, and very soon hundreds of them were, were even dying. Now, those early reports were kept secret. America had joined the fight in 1917, um, which meant that the Allies were getting even closer to victory over Germany and the Central Powers by the spring of 1918. And so since the war had reached a turning point, neither side wanted to give up any weakness. So they just kind of didn't mention all of these Chinese workers dying. In Spain, so the way that the Spanish influenza came about, Spain was one of the earliest countries where the epidemic was identified but the historians think that this was likely a result of wartime, wartime censorship because they were a neutral nation during the war, and so they didn't really censor their press, so they could freely publish early accounts of the illness from the Chinese. And as a result, people falsely believed that the illness was specific to Spain, and that's where you get the Spanish flu from. So Spain just got the bad rep. Yeah, because Spain had more freedom of the press. Yeah, and now we would call it the swine flu because of the H1N1. But they believe this. <laughs> they probably would have called it the Chinese, the, the China flu. Yeah. I don't know. But um, the British press blamed the flu epidemic in Spain on the Spanish weather. And one article in the Times said that, quote, the dry, windy Spanish spring is an unpleasant and unhealthy season. And it was suggested that microbe laden dust was being spread by the high winds in Spain, meaning that Britain's wet climate might stop the flu from spreading there. Which, of course, didn't happen. Yeah. So the symptoms of this, initially the symptoms of the flu included um, a sore head, a headache, mm -hmm. tiredness, followed by a dry hacking cough and a loss of appetite, stomach problems, and then on the second day, excessive sweating. Next, the flu would affect the respiratory organs and pneumonia would develop. 
the pneumonia or other respiratory complications brought about by the flu were often the main cause of death. And this kind of explains why it's difficult to determine exactly the number of people killed by the flu because a lot of the official records didn't list flu as a cause of death. They, they classified it as something other than the flu. And this is another one of those times where there you can obviously see the parallels. There, some of these are very symptom or um, similar to COVID-19 symptoms of um, I've heard that you get a sore throat and a dry hacking cough at first, and then within a couple of days it turns into pneumonia. And so even though they are different diseases, they present with a lot of the same symptoms, which is where a lot of this misinformation that people are getting of it's no word, it's just a bad flu. COVID-19 is not a bad flu. It's a completely different virus. Yeah. So now, only decades later, scientists have been able to explain this phenomena which is known as cytokine explosion. So basically what a cytokine explosion is, is when the human body is being attacked by a virus, the immune system sends messenger proteins called cytokines to promote healthy, helpful information. But some strains of the flu, particularly the H1N1 strain, responsible for the Spanish flu outbreak, can trigger a dangerous immune overreaction in healthy individuals. In those cases, the body is overloaded by cytokines, leading to a severe inflammation and fatal buildup of fluid in the lungs. Yeah, so you basically... Folks, that is not me. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) So basically what happens is the cytokine proteins like basically over-inflame your tissues and your lungs puff up and don't work right. Yeah. Basically, it's like you drown. Yeah, kind, yeah. Okay. Yay, fun. So the spread, when the Spanish flu first appeared in early March 1918 during West, in Western Europe during World War I, it had all the hallmarks of the seasonal flu, even the, but just it was a highly contagious and virulent strain. But historians now believe that the conflict may have been partly responsible for spreading the virus. We mentioned this earlier. On the Western Front, soldiers were living in really awful conditions. It was cramped, it was dirty, damp, and they became sick. And their um, immune systems were extra weak from malnourishment. So their illness, which was known as la grippe, was infectious and it spread among the ranks that were already kind of ugh. And within three days of becoming ill, many soldiers would start to feel better, but not everybody would make it. And by the summer of 1918, the virus was quickly spreading to other countries in mainland Europe. Vienna, Budapest, Hungary, they were all suffering. Parts of Germany and France were similarly affected. Um, And this sounds familiar. Many children in Berlin schools were reported ill and absent from school and absences in armament factories reduced production. By June 25th, 1918, the flu epidemic in Spain had reached Britain. Now, remember the Brits thought that, oh, our weather is not good. It can't survive here. It's a Spanish thing. Our weather's tougher than Spain. Well, in July, the epidemic was hitting the London textile trade so hard that one factory had 80 out of 400 workers go home sick in one evening alone. In London, reports on government workers absent due to the flu range from 25 to 50% of the workforce. So I don't care how rainy it is in Britain, y'all got the flu. 
During the summer of 1918, as troops started to come home on leave, they brought with them this undetected virus that had made them ill, and it spread across cities, towns, and villages in the home countries all over the world. And it was actually hardest on young adults between the ages of 20 and 30 who had previously been healthy, which is different than the COVID strain that we're talking about. So this epidemic had rapidly become a pandemic making its way across the world, which gets back to our definition there. Yep. In August 1918, six Canadian sailors died on the St. Lawrence River. In the same month, cases reported were reported among the Swedish Army. Then in the country's civilian population, and also among South African laborers. By September, the flu had reached the United States through Boston Harbor. The 1918 flu spread across the world, even to remote areas like the Pacific Islands and to the Arctic. That's amazing. Yeah, a large factor of the worldwide occurrence of this flu was because of increased travel. Modern transportation, like ships, I mean, we didn't have aircraft and things like that. I mean, we did have aircraft, but they weren't... Right. You, you it was military lo- aircraft, yeah, and, and they you, didn't go yeah, like, you, super you, far. Yeah, so it wasn't like we were flying. If you went from the United States to Europe, you went on ship. You couldn't fly over. Right. Remember, the planes had only been invented in 1903, so yeah. we're only, you know, yeah. a, 10 years. But because of the trains and because of the ships, it made it a lot easier for this disease to spread to spread across the world. By the end of the pandemic, only one major region on the entire planet had not reported an outbreak, and that was in, on an isolated island in uh, Brazil's Amazon River Delta. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, James Harris at The Ohio State University says, the rapid movement of soldiers around the globe was a major spreader of the disease. The entire military-industrial complex of moving lots of men and material in crowded conditions was certainly a huge contributing factor in the ways the pandemic spread. Not only was it shocking that healthy young men and women were dying by the millions worldwide, but it was also how they were dying. They were, they were blistering fevers, nasal hemorrhaging, and Ugh. pneumonia. The sick were basically drowning, like we said earlier, in their own fluid-filled lungs. One of the first documented cases in the United States was a guy named Albert Gitchell. Albert was a United States Army cook at Camp Funston in Kansas, at Fort Riley, Kansas. He was hospitalized with 104-degree fever. The flu spread rapid, rapidly through Camp Funston, which at that time had about 54,000 soldiers there. By the end of the month, 1,100 soldiers had been hospitalized and 38 had died after developing pneumonia. That's insane. Yeah. That's, those are big numbers. Yeah. Now, in the summer of 1918, reported cases of the Spanish flu dropped off, and there was hope at the beginning of August that the virus had run its course. But in retrospect, that was only the calm before the storm, because then there was a second wave. Somewhere in Europe, a mutated strain of the Spanish flu virus had emerged that had the power to kill a perfectly healthy young man or woman within 24 hours of showing the first signs of infection. British military doctors who conducted autopsies on soldiers killed by the second wave of the flu described heavy damage to lungs as akin to the effects of chemical warfare. So it, I, I can't imagine you're healthy one day and dead the next. 
Like, and, and not to mention all of the things that you talked about with the first wave with the like nasal hemorrhaging and ugh, it sounds awful. And then in January of 1919, a third wave erupted in Australia and eventually worked its way back to Europe and United States. It's believed that President Woodrow Wilson contracted the Spanish flu during the World War I peace negotiations in Paris in April 1919. Now, the mortality rate of the third wave was just as high as the second wave, but the end of the war in November 1918 removed the conditions that allowed the disease to spread so far and so quickly so global deaths from the third wave, whilst still in the millions, paled in comparison to those absolutely apocalyptic losses during the second wave. And by the spring of 1919, the numbers of deaths from the Spanish flu were decreasing. Countries were obviously left devastated in the wake of the outbreak. Um, medical professionals hadn't been able to halt the spread of the disease, and so the pandemic echoed what had happened 500 years earlier when the Black Death took over the world, basically. Um, the argument has been made that the 1918 influenza pandemic shifted the balance of World War I in favor of the Allies because the central powers of Germany and Austria were hit by the flu before the Allied powers, so the morbidity and mortality rates there were higher, so they had fewer guys left to fight. Okay, so I guess that makes sense right there. Um, and also, too, kind of a, a, a piggyback on that one, since the Americans hadn't yet, like, we kind of came into the fight a little bit later, and we were healthy, healthier than a lot of the the guys that had already kind of had a little bit of the Spanish flu. That's where the term doughboy came from, is because we were not malnourished like the Brits had been, and we were these fat fighting guys that came over from America, hardy and healthy. We talked about this on uh, an earlier episode. We did on our Christmas because, episode, I think. Yeah, because I have also read that the term doughboy came because the uh, the United States soldiers liked donuts, and they were called doughboys. But we're like deja vu all over again. But we're regressing. <laughs> we are. Okay. So, just as happening today with COVID nineteen. There was a public response and there was impact. Britain's response in the summer of 1918, the Royal College of Physicians claimed the flu was no more threatening than the Russian flu of 1189 to 94. The British Medical Journal accepted the overcrowding on transport and in the workplace necessary for the war effort. So basically, they were saying, because of the war, we have to accept this. And it's that. British stiff upper lip mentality yeah. that they have. They implied that the inconvenience of the flu should be quietly borne. Individual doctors also did not fully comprehend the severity of the disease and tried to play it down to avoid spreading anxiety. The rapid spread was at least partially to blame on public health officials who were unwilling to impose wartime quarantines or quarantines during wartime. In Britain, for example, a government official, a guy named Arthur News home knew full well that a strict civilian lockdown was the best way to fight the spread of the, this really highly contagious disease, but he wouldn't risk crippling the war effort by keeping munition factory workers and other civilians at home. Newholm concluded that the relentless needs of warfare justified incurring the risk of spreading infection. He encouraged Britons to simply carry on during the, during the pandemic. 
So it really begs kind of an interesting question, and we'll make it rhetorical. I won't, I won't directly ask you, but do, is it was it worth it to? I mean, it's it's a. I guess at that time the British government decided it was right. It is. It's one of those. Um, I bet this would be a good. Uh, you you hear like the revisionist history books, like the man in the high castle, things like that. That would be an interesting take on um, sort of a revisionist history novel. If you wrote a, a book about what if they did close the munitions factories and stuff during World War One during the outbreak, would it have had a different outcome on the war? Food for thought. Interesting. Poss- possibly, I don't know, but they that was the decision that they made. Hmm. One of the Big reasons that the Spanish flu claimed so many lives in 1918 was that science simply didn't have the tools to develop a vaccine for the virus. Mm. Microscopes couldn't even see something that small of a virus. They they couldn't see a virus until the 1930s when they developed the electron microscope. Doctors were at a loss as to what to recommend to their patients. Many, Many doctors, physicians urged people to avoid crowded places kind of what we're doing right now, or simply avoid other people. What do we call it now? Social, social distancing. Social distancing. Uh, so back then, we didn't use fancy terms like social distancing. <laughs> it's just said, simply avoid other people. Other suggested remedies, including eating cinnamon, drinking wine, or even drinking Oxo's meat drink, which is basically a beef broth. So like CBD oil, yeah. It's like back the 1918 equivalent of CBD oil. Doctors also told people to keep their mouths and noses covered in public, which now is exactly what they're doing now. Now there's a lot of controversy of. here. People that there's only like a certain like the the high quality mask that doctors wear is they say it's it's stupid to go out and wear like the mask that you pick up at Lowe's to keep dust out, but there's a lot of people are wearing that knowing full well that that is not going to stop the spread of the disease. But in our current disease outbreak that we have right now, it's transmitted by you touching something on your hand. It's it's not absorbed through your skin. It's absorbed through your mouth and your nose. So a lot of people are wearing masks knowing full well that this mask is not going to stop the germ from entering. But if you've touched something... A lot of people reach up to scratch their nose or scratch their lip yeah. or something like that. So it's like tying that little string around your finger. I if you caught put myself that, doing it. So if you put that little doing. mask on, it reminds you. Don't don't. It, it prevents you from it. yeah. And also, it does help with social distancing. We were getting this morning. We were getting coffee, and I saw my first person wearing a mask today, and I was like, "Whoa, is she sick? Like, what? Get her away from me. I don't want this." And good. Ch- and Steve was less overdramatic than I am. He's like, maybe she's immunocompromised and she's not sick, but she's wearing it to prevent getting sick from somebody sneezing on her mouth or whatever, which was a much kinder approach <laughs> than what I took. But um, so if you see somebody with a mask... I am trying not to panic, Kim. Stay away. <laughs> stay away if you have a mask. At one point, they even blamed aspirin as the cause of the pandemic. In the face of... In the doctor's helplessness, ordinary people tried anything they could to treat their friends and their family. One of the most popular attempted cures included significant doses of alcohol, especially whiskey and brandy. Others attempt <laughs> other attempted I, cures range from camphor, quinine, to creosote, to strychnine. 
I won't name names, but a certain family member suggested that uh, bourbon would help take care of COVID-19 and that they happen to have just enough. (laughs) So even as people were dying, people were just like today, back then, people were advertising fake cures. There was one advertisement that stated that mints were the best means of preventing the infective process and that everyone, including children, should suck four or five of these little tablets a day until they felt better. Uh, Go ahead. I Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, just don't touch your mouth or your eyes or your nose. Now, lacking a vaccine or even a known cause of the outbreak, mayors and city health officials in the United States were left to improvise. Should they close schools and ban all public gatherings? Should they recall? And just remember in Ohio, right now schools are closed for three weeks because of the current. Yes. So yeah. And they're even talking about. We, we, yeah, no we more can, school the rest of the year. Yeah, so we can mention that a little bit right now. Right now in Ohio, um, we kind of said it at the top of the hour that uh, there we are some of the more aggressive treatments. Um, in addition to schools being closed for at minimum three weeks, uh, tonight they closed all of the restaurants. Now you can still get carryout and delivery, um, and they haven't closed like coffee shops places where you can just like go in and get it and leave. Dunkin' Donuts quickly. is still open. Yes, places yeah. like that. Um, but a lot of those places, I think, are self-closing their dining areas. So, um, And the governor has also, uh, he has said that daycares will probably close. They haven't done it yet, um, but daycares will probably close. He has said that you are not allowed to visit nursing homes, and he has said that there are, are no gatherings of more than 100 people. So, uh, like we said earlier, there are a lot of parallels mm-hmm. that the doctors and people understood how the spread happened. And so there are a lot of parallels, which yeah. is going to come up here in a little bit. Because we're going to give really... you a couple examples of three cities and how three different cities handled this. It's fascinating for me f- as a history lover to watch this. You know, you always hear, um, especially with regard to the Holocaust, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. But this is this is living that out. And like we're watching it in action right now. Um, the governments are are looking back at the Spanish flu. I keep hearing the Spanish flu come up again and again and again in, in um, conversation and stuff. And I think that the lessons learned from the 1918 outbreak are really relevant to the coronavirus outbreak that we're having right now. I'll tell you what. I'm not going to laugh at preppers anymore. <laughs> we are not. No. Yeah. Teach me your ways, preppers. Hey, if you... We were limited to three packs of toilet paper. Yeah, which was interesting because they it's three packs of toilet paper, period. It doesn't matter if you are buying a pack of four or a pack of 24. You can take three of them. If it's available in the store to begin with. If it's with. available. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I, mean, I mean, before we continue on with 1918, it's... This reminds me of what's going on right now of East Germany. Oh, yeah. How the stores were, the shelves were empty. And it's just, it, it's hard to believe in 2020 in the United States of America that we are experiencing this right now. So I also would like to give a shout out to my friend Erica, who I had to laugh a little bit. She bought a bidet that attached to her toilet um, and so she's like, I don't really need toilet paper anymore. I have a bidet. And then she's got like clean washcloths to dry herself. 
But she she did post on Facebook that the very first time she used the bidet, she said, I kind of wish that I had sprung for the one that heated the water. It was about $20 more, but it would have been a lot nicer. All right. So. Well, let's get back to 1980. Moving on. <laughs> so um, these were all things that mayors and city health officials had to consider. Um, should they require that every citizen wear a face mask? Would shutting down important financial centers in wartime be unpatriotic? And Americans were offered... Advice on how to avoid getting infected. Don't shake hands with other people. Um, stay inside. Avoid touching library books. Wear masks. Schools and theaters did close. The New York City Department of Health strictly enforced a sanitary code amendment that made spitting in the streets illegal. Uh, which Well, back in the cowboy days, they did that because it spread tuberculosis, hmm. too. So. I mean, back then, I guess chewing tobacco was probably a lot more common maybe than it is now. So people would just spit their dip spit in the street. But um, so, so we are going to take a look at three different cities and how in the United States, um, what is it? It's Philadelphia, St. Louis and San Francisco. And they all handled the, the 1918 outbreak very differently. And I think if you take anything away from tonight's episode, listen to these examples and just make your own conclusions. Again, it's, don't we are not making this political. This is just this is what happened, whether you want to accept that or not. This is history. This is fact. So just take it for that. Now I'm going to start off with Philadelphia. By mid-September, the Spanish flu was spreading like wildfire through the army and the naval installations in Philadelphia. But Wilmer Cruzen, the Philadelphia's public health director, assured the public that stricken soldiers were only suffering from the old-fashioned seasonal flu, and it could be contained, or would be contained, before infecting the civilian population. When the first few civilian cases were reported in September, on September 21st, local physicians worried that this could be the start of an epidemic. But Cruson and his medical board said Philadelphians could lower their risk of catching the flu by staying warm, keeping their feet dry, and their <laughs> bowels open. This is according to uh, John M. Barry. John M. Barry, in his book, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. Keep your bowels open, everybody. As civilian infection rates climbed day by day, Cruson refused to cancel the upcoming Liberty Loan Parade scheduled for September 28th. Barry writes that infectious disease experts warned Cruson that about the parade, which was expected expected to attract several hundred thousand Philadelphians, and they'd be ready, it'd be a ready-made inflammable mass for conflag conflagration, conflagration is the word you're looking That's for. The word I'm, I, I'm not looking for it. It's right there. <laughs> Cruson insisted that the parade must go on since it would raise millions of dollars in war bonds, kind of like. The thought was going on in England, and he played down the danger of spreading the disease. On September 28th, a patriotic procession of soldiers, Boy Scouts, marching bands, and local dignitaries stretched two miles through downtown Philadelphia with the sidewalks packed with spectators. It gets real here. 72 hours after the parade, all 31 of Philadelphia's hospitals were full, and 2,600 people were dead by the end of the week. So... Yeah, uh, and that um, is taking no action. Yeah, and and, and I again keep in mind not only talking, not taking action but encouraging counteraction. Yeah, and keep in mind we're not talking COVID. That we're just 
using this as an example of how the viruses disease, a virus can spread any virus. Yeah, so um, yeah, we're yeah. not we're not trying to say this is going to happen in the United States with this. Here, it's just examples of how the virus spreads. Right. So um, so that is one example of, the, okay, there's a virus, and they not only don't do anything, but they do the exact opposite of what is recommended to them. Now. They weren't social distancing. They, they were, were social embracing. <laughs> how many people did you say were, like, lining the streets? It was a lot. several thousand, it, it I just think. Said, it, several hundred thousand. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, so let's counter that with St. Louis. Now, the public health response in St. Louis couldn't have been more different. And this is very similar to what the state of Ohio was doing. Yeah, right. Even before the first case of Spanish flu had been reported in the city, the health commissioner, Dr. Max Starkloff, had local physicians on high alert, and he wrote an editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about the importance of avoiding crowds. Social distancing. Now, when a flu outbreak at a nearby military barracks first spread into the St. Louis civilian population, Starkloff wasted no time in closing the schools, shuttering movie theaters and pool halls, and banning all public gatherings. There was pushback from business owners, but Starkloff and the mayor held their ground. And when infections swelled, as expected, thousands of sick residents were treated at home by a network of volunteer nurses, which is something that we don't see today, as far as I know. I haven't heard anything about people, um, volunteer physicians and nurses going into people's homes. We are just at the beginning of this. But we are at the beginning, so that is something that you may see eventually. Um, Now, back in 1918... Because of these precautions, St. Louis public health officials were able to, quote, flatten the curve, which is something that we're hearing the now. The we're using right now, flatten the curve. But that was a term that came from the 1918 outbreak. They were using it even then. And keep the flu epidemic from exploding overnight as it did in Philadelphia. As one author put it, quote, it's that crush of new cases in such a short period of time that completely overwhelms a city's capacity that magnifies whatever problems you're already having. So essentially what they did then and what Ohio is trying to do right now, they're flattening the curve, that mm-hmm. bell-shaped curve, because they don't want the hospitals overwhelmed with people. Right. And we kind of touched on it earlier, but you have to remember everybody is so consumed. And and this is something that really struck me this week uh, and going through all of this stuff with Nora. People are draw parallels here. Yeah. People are so consumed with the current pandemic that you forget about all of the other things. Like you forget about just regular people who are having heart attacks or are having epileptic seizures or are having um, diabetic issues they're still going to need to get to the hospital too. So, I mean, what's going on? Our public health officials right now are looking at it, not just at the the surface level. It's like right. we have to try to do what we can to slow down this pandemic from happening. There are so many other things that are going to be tied to this, economically, right. other health issues and stuff like that. So it's, it's look, whether you want to say it's the media is hyping this up or whatever, the bottom line is it is having real effects on people, whether it's media hype or whatever. And oh, yeah. if you don't believe me, go, go out to and the try store. To, go to the store and try to buy toilet paper There right was now. no rice left at Kroger. None. Gone. 
within less than an hour of restaurants closing. Um, According to a 2007 analysis of the Spanish flu death records, the peak mortality rate in St. Louis was only one-eighth of Philadelphia's death rate at its worst. That's not to say that St. Louis survived the epidemic unharmed because it was particularly hit hard by the third wave of Spanish flu, which was the one that returned in the late winter and spring of 2019, or 2019, 1919. But it, as far as the United States is concerned, St. Louis, for the aggressive steps that they took, they saw it coming, they acted aggressively, and they were much better off than a lot of other places. Now, San Francisco is the third city that we're going to talk about, which took a little bit different approach. Well, they kind of took the same approach. Let me just tell you what happened here. (laughs) In San Francisco, the health officials put their full faith behind the gauze mask. California Governor William Steffens declared that it was the patriotic duty of every American citizen to wear a mask, and San Francisco eventually made it law. Citizens caught in public without a mask were without or without even wearing it properly, which, I mean, as we were down at the hospital this past week, we saw a lot of people wearing their mask, Mm -hmm. and you you would think it'd be common sense. You put the mask over your mouth and over your nose. I saw, I don't know how many people, not the health professionals. Obviously. Not them, but other people walking through the hallways of the hospital, and they would have their mask on, and it would just cover their mouth. Mm-hmm. wasn't covering their nose. So yep, That doesn't really do you a lot of good. Unless, it helps a little bit, but... Unless they were doing it, like I said, it was just a reminder to them to not... But even still, put it... O- I mean, you're still accessing your nose. Put it over your nose, too. So if you were walking through San Francisco and you weren't wearing your mask or you weren't wearing it properly, you were arrested and you could be charged with disturbing the peace and fined $5. Wow. And fine, I mean, that's a pretty decent chunk of change. In 1918, 1919 19, 19 terms, five bucks is, that's pretty. They were claiming that the gauze mask, the city officials claim 99% proof against influenza. So basically, we're saying that you had the 90, 99% solution. If you wore this mask, you were not going to get influenza. When in reality, they were hardly effective at all. Mm. San Francisco's relatively low infection rates in October were probably due to well-organized campaigns to quarantine all naval installations before the flu arrived. Because remember, we said it was the Navy and the military that was really transporting us across the country. Plus, early efforts to close schools, ban social gatherings, and close all places of public amusement. So it sounds like San Francisco kind of took a a mid-level approach between the two extremes. Well, they, they, they did it. They closed all of the things. They closed all that, and then they actually required people to wear the mask. Now, the masks weren't effective, but it was all these other things that kind of helped stop the spread. Gotcha. And probably mostly because of quarantine and the sailors. Which, uh, another parallel to today, um, they have suspended all domestic travel uh, for military, if you live or work on a military installation, you are not allowed to travel. Yeah, just just right local. now. Yeah. So in November, on November twenty first, a whistle blast sounded through San Francisco, that meant that all San Franciscans could finally take off their mask. And the San Francisco Chronicle described sidewalks and runnels strewn with the relics of a torturous month, but. 
But San Francisco's luck ran out when the third wave of the Spanish flu struck in January 1919. Believing that the masks were what saved them the first time, businesses and theater owners fought back against a public gatherings order. As a result, San Francisco ended up suffering some of the highest death rates from the Spanish flu nationwide. A 2007 analysis found that if San Francisco's had kept all their anti-flu precautions that they had in place initially during the second wave through the spring of 1919, they could have reduced the death rate by 90%. That's a lot. Yeah. So, lesson learned from history. It may seem extreme, but basically stay away from other people. Yeah. Don't, it's that simple. Stay away from other people. Stay away from other people. Simple. Now, to summarize, World War I had resulted in a shortage of doctors in some areas, and a lot of the physicians who were left became ill themselves. Now, this is a, That's a concern, a, a right concern now. today for me. I worry about, um, we have several friends and relatives who are nurses. Well, And they're worried about if the doctors and nurses get sick. Yeah, who's going to take care of this They can't people. treat you. Yeah. Right, sure. Um, schools and other buildings in 1918, 1919 became makeshift hospitals, and medical students had to place, take the place of doctors in some instances. Bodies piled up to such an extent that cemeteries were overwhelmed and families had to dig the graves for their relatives. The deaths created such a shortage of farm workers that the late summer harvest was affected, and in Britain, a lack of staff and resources put other services like waste collection under pressure. So you remember um, Steve and I went to Washington, D.C. during the last government shutdown. And remember how like the trash workers weren't allowed to collect the trash that was like on the National Mall and stuff. Yep. And it was just it was really that. I mean, that's going to become an issue, too, if uh, if it gets as bad as they say it might that. um you know, just kind of try to be mindful of that because then you have a whole other health uh, issue. The pandemic spread to Asia, Africa, South America, the South Pacific. In India, the mortality rate reached 50 deaths per 1,000 people. That's a lot. That is a lot of people. In comparison, now remember this is H1N1, same Similar, not same, similar to the swine flu outbreak that H1, I was fortunate enough to have in 2009. That swine flu outbreak caused respiratory illnesses that killed an estimated 151,000 to 575,000 people, which is, I mean, that's a wide range, but we're talking worldwide in the first year, according to the CDC. So that was about 0.001% to 0.007% of the world's population compared to the 1918 Spanish flu, um, which was way higher. Uh, we're talking not like the hundreds of percents, but in the tens, twenties percents. Um, about 80% of the deaths caused by swine flu it occurred in people younger than 65, which was unusual. Typically, 70 to 90% of deaths caused by seasonal influenza are in people older than 65. Um, and is and I think this uh, numbers are similar for the COVID-19 virus, which is coming around now. A vaccine for the influenza strain that causes swine flu is now included in annual flu vaccines. Thank goodness, because like I said, it's not fun. You don't want it. 
People still die from the flu every year, but the numbers are far lower on average compared to those for the swine flu or Spanish flu pandemics. Annual epidemics of seasonal flu results in about 3 to 5 million cases of severe illnesses and about 290,000 to 650,000 deaths worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. In 1918, it was impossible to test people with mild symptoms so they could self-quarantine, and it was also nearly impossible to do what they call contact tracing because the flu seemed to infect and panic entire cities and communities all at once. Even more, there was little protective equipment for healthcare workers and the supportive care staff with things like respirators that can be provided to the people today who are ill with the coronavirus. Like right. with the coronavirus, because yeah. they just didn't exist. Researchers believe in 1918 the flu spared a lot of the older generation because they had lived through, they had built up an immunity. So they theorized that a couple decades before that a strain or this strain of H1N1 had gone through and a lot of people, maybe not as severe, mm-hmm. had contracted it, so had the disease, the memory cells, and so it didn't hit the older people as hard, not to say that they didn't die, right. but not in the numbers that younger people were dying. So basically, the older people living in 1918 had been exposed, and the flu was less lethal to them because they developed antibodies. Right. So back to 2019, what can we learn today with COVID-19 in, from the Spanish flu? Well... The first thing I really want to say right here is, for the love of everything holy, we're not supposed to be touching other people. To That's how the disease is spread. Mm-hmm. So if you're at Walmart or Costco, please, people, please, don't get in a grappling match. <laughs> grappling match with someone over toilet paper. Right. Yeah, okay? that's counterproductive. It, it, yeah, don't do it. You're not supposed to do that. So Yeah, socially distance yourself. Yeah, just don't get in a fight with anybody. Keep calm over all this. The, the supply chain will catch up because there is a lot of panic buying right now and things are going on. But the supply chain, I'm very, very confident, will catch up and you will have toilet paper. Um, I would like to say uh, keep, just like Steve said, so, you know, we joke, but really seriously, stay away from people. At least six feet is what they recommend. Um, this is like an introvert's dream come true. <laughs> just stay away, don't touch me. Um, but consider uh, supporting your small businesses at this point in time. A lot of local businesses live and die on, I mean, like, um, even if even if it peaks faster than they think it will, um, they're saying it's probably going to peak in May or June. That's a long time to be shut down, and that could really break local businesses. So consider buying gift cards, um, shopping online if you can, if you are in one of the places that they've shut down restaurants, but you can still get carry out, please do um, consider, you know, doing just do be mindful and cognizant. Also, stay away from old people. Check on your elderly relatives. Um, do your gro- do their grocery shopping for them if you can, because unlike in 1918, uh, the covid epidemic is hitting the older people harder. Um, so, so and there's a lot of innovation that's happening right now. And people, a lot of people like we, we have a, a friend who works in a salon and a hairdresser Mm -hmm. 
and they are trying to schedule people so that they come in at staggered times or a different time so they have time to clean and do what I mean people are still going to have to get haircuts and things like sure. that so they're people are trying to do the right thing they're, they're staggering times so that people and I actually read they somewhere. have time to clean and spray things down so to help yeah, not I'm spread not sure the, where the disease. I, I'm not sure where I read it but I thought I thought I read somewhere either yesterday or today that the movie theaters, like the big national chains where you can go, you buy your tickets online, that they have shut it down so that you can only, you can't buy two seats next to each other. Like they're, you can. I've not heard that. You have to, like the seats are blocked off. You can only buy every other seat. Here in the United States, as with a lot of places in the world, we're going through something that most of us have never experienced before. Everyone just keep calm. Take care of your neighbor. Don't get in fist fights over toilet paper. Yeah. And uh, and this will pass. This yeah. too will pass. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, we've been through stuff. I mean, we haven't, but our country has been through things like this before. Take heart from that. Take heart knowing that we, we came through it once and it was way worse than what it probably is going to be now. Uh, and we bounced back and everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, there are going to be inconveniences. But you'll we'll get through. And like and like right now, uh, one of our lawyer friends, as soon as they announced that school would be closed for three weeks, said that the phone was ringing off the hook right then. As who gets the kids during this three weeks? Right. So just be nice to each other. Be kind to each other. Don't try to take advantage of each other or situations or whatever else. Just apply some common sense. Be a decent person. All right, Kim. All right. If you would like to uh, share your thoughts on the Spanish flu or on COVID-19 or just anything else, um, you can reach out to us. We Our Twitter is a lost hour. Uh, also, that's our email address, alosthour at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at an hour of your life. Um, and this does remind me, yeah. the special thing that we were planning and we're wanting to do for St. Patrick's Day we will not be able to do not because this of year. this. Not this year. We won't be able to do it. But you know what? Maybe next year. Our Irish friends still send us an email. Sure. Yeah, we'd talk love to. to. Yeah, we'd like to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you. We'll read your your email on the air. So, yeah, I'm not going to say what we're going to do because we may do that next year. Yeah. So happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Um, enjoy. Stay safe. If you are uh, one of those people that's able to still get out and celebrate, then have fun. Yep. Be safe. Keep your social distance. Yeah. And don't drink too much. And we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. So from the studios, from the 13th Hour Studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this week's episode include Governor Mike DeWine from the state of Ohio, the Centers for National Disease Control, National Geographic, All About History Magazine, Dave Rue's articles on History.com, Why the Second Wave of the 1918 Spanish Flu Was So Deadly, and How U.S. Cities Tried to Halt the Spread of the 1918 Spanish Flu. Mark Humphrey's The Last Plague, published by University of Toronto Press in 2013, and James Harris from The Ohio State University. Stay safe, everybody.